Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Anne, Chelsea's mom. And thank you for listening. Are you enjoying the podcast so far? The best way you can support us and spread awareness is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Um, I have a review I'm going to read from. Okay. From la- earlier this month. So, SYR Dad left us a five-star review and said... My daughter has selective mutism, and we have been listening to the podcast together. It really helps her to know that there are others out there that have gone through the same issue she is dealing with. Also, your discussion topics are reinforcing the guidance that she has heard from our therapist. Great podcast, and keep them coming. That's good to hear that we're actually reinforcing what she's hearing in therapy. (laughs) Yeah, that's really encouraging. So go ahead and leave us a review. Okay, so uh, today we're going to discuss uh, sensory processing disorder. Recent research indicates that about 75% of children with selective mutism also have difficulty with sensory processing. So do you want to start off by defining what sensory processing disorder is? Sure. So sensory processing disorder is when your brain has trouble organizing and then responding to information from your senses. So. You have trouble with certain sights, sounds, smells, textures, and tastes that can lead to an overload of sensory information. Okay, and I just wanted to point out too, there's other senses besides your five senses. A lot of them talk about proprioception, just knowing, you know, where your body is, sort of the position of your body. It's proprio what? Proprioception. (laughs) I don't know what that is. Okay. The literature does discuss not only the five senses, but also incorporating or including proprioception, which is a sense of body awareness or knowing your body position. And then the other one would be vestibular sense, which involves movement. So basically the child's balance, coordination, Mm -hmm. that that's another sense. Okay, cool. Okay, I just wanted to add that in. And there's also different kinds of sensory processing disorder. Well, some of the literature sort of describes the difference between being hypersensitive and having hyposensitive or not sensing things enough or not receiving enough input from sensory intake. So hypersensitive is basically um, you're overly or the child is overly sensitive to sounds, could be distracted by background noises. Um, So maybe they can't focus on anything else because of such a loud background noise. They could also be fearful or, you know, have startle reflex, being surprised by somebody touching them. Probably hugging is probably too much stimuli for them. Sometimes even, you know, cuddling or hugging, that kind of thing. Some kids are really afraid or fearful of going to the playground, being on the swing, anything that causes them um, sort of too much stimuli or maybe a merry-go-round, something like that. It's overwhelming to to them to process, I guess, to take it in. A lot of kids have trouble sensing the amount of force that they're applying. So maybe instead of, you know, erasing the paper, they are, they're erasing, but they're tearing the paper because they can't <laughs> sort of, uh, what's the word? Process, like they're... Right, how much appropriate pressure yeah. or whatever to, to do. Maybe they're pinching, maybe pinching too hard. You know, they don't mean to be mean, but maybe doing things a little bit too hard. Let's see, another example might be kids that go to the beach and they don't like the feel of the sand um it's too much they just don't like it Mm -hmm. um or sun this is something that i know you as a toddler you did not like the sun in your face um that can you know just trigger tantrums we actually went to dominican republic on a family trip and um 
the entire week we had to shade you with an umbrella because you did anytime the sun hit your face you would just have a meltdown things like putting on sun sunblock um, some kids that's just they don't like the feel of that so sometimes a spray using a spray is better so those are examples of hypersensitive mm-hmm. and there's hyposensitive yeah so the flip side of that is hypo these kids might be kids that are always touching everything they're playing mm-hmm. with your hair they have to touch everything that they see even though you tell them not to touch it there's they just can't help <laughs> they just want that input maybe they don't understand personal space um, they maybe mm-hmm. some of them can have like a high tolerance to pain and that's kind of a confusing one I thought because I know with SM Mm -hmm. sometimes you don't want the attention so you would just pretend nothing happened but then reading this it actually made me question is it this was it like that you have a higher tolerance to pain for hyposensitive I guess another name for that um, that I hear a lot in the autism community Mm -hmm. is sensory seeking so a lot like sensory processing disorders common in kids with autism and ADHD as well Mm-hmm. So those people seek out stimulation, like they constantly need sensory input okay. to feel comfortable, which is the opposite of how I felt, and I think how a lot of, mm-hmm. I think um, the hype, hypersensitive is more common with selective mutism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are just some examples. Some other mm-hmm. things, you know, these kids might be jumping, bumping, crashing into things, running into the doorways, mm-hmm. doing overly, you know, tight bear hugs. Mm-hmm. They just like a lot of movement, spinning, and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, those are the two different, I guess, types of stimuli mm-hmm. integration issues. But like you said, I think probably, at least in your case, yeah, it was the hypersensitive issues mm-hmm. that we had. So I have a few signs and symptoms. A lot of them, I guess you already said, but just to summarize different signs you might see in kids who have sensory processing disorder, they, that they're easily overwhelmed in certain situations or in certain spaces, and they often seek out quiet spaces. They're easily startled by sights or sounds, and they're bothered by bright light, and then they refuse to wear certain textures of clothing. I often call things itchy or scratchy. Scratchy. say scratchy. jeans, Mm -hmm. especially. Another sign is avoiding touch or hugging. And then I also have the difficulty with different textures and smells of certain foods, and that can also lead to a limited diet. So those are just some signs you might notice. Yeah, and we talked about before where you would say food was slimy, mm-hmm. anything kind of wet, you've said it was slimy. Yep. We also talked about hugging before. I think that might overlap, though, also with just SM not wanting attention yeah. and besides the sensory issue. So another thing I just wanted to mention is that, you know, kids with sensory integration issues, that it does actually, I mean, it affects the whole family, obviously. You know, I think a lot of kids that have sensory issues is kind of demonstrated by having tantrums, by being fussy. I was telling Chelsea that, you know, when I was a new mom and she was my oldest, you know, in the beginning we would, um, friends and that would invite us out for like a mom's get together, you know, go to a play place, you know, have lunch, the kids would play, that kind of a thing. But it just never really worked out for us. And at the time, you know, I didn't realize they're just toddlers, but, you know, Chelsea was colicky, she was fussy, you know, just arching her back, tantrums. It always seemed to end up with just Chelsea and me off to the side doing our own thing. I was saying to her, you know, kind of eventually noticed we just stopped getting invited. Um, And that can be tough. I think a lot of families, a lot of relationships too. It can be stressful in the home. You know, when you have a fussy child or a child acting out, but you don't really know why they're acting out. 
So it can affect relationships as well as family engagement and social activities and routines. Also just going out to restaurants, I know that was a, a trigger for Chelsea. You know, as an infant, I remember in the car seat or even putting her in the high chair. I mean, we had to leave a few restaurants, I remember, because of her crying, basically, and she just could not stop crying. Whether it was the table next to us, if everyone burst out laughing, she just broke down um, to the point where we had to leave the restaurant. So it does, you know, it does affect the functioning of the family, just social interaction, etc. And, you know, it can be stressful for parents. You know, it's exhausting. I think when you have any special needs child, I mean, at this point, a lot of kids, you don't know they're, that they're having issues. Mm-hmm. You just kind of know they're fussy or they're having, you know, acting out. Right, you don't before really know they why. can communicate, it's hard to figure out why they're acting that way. Right, and I think as a parent, you start to question your own parenting. You kind of wonder, you know, you sort of question your own competence as a parent. So it can be tough. So I just wanted to mention that. So I'm just going to talk about some sensory issues that I have struggled with. And a lot of them have to do with food, which we talked about in the last episode, I think, where we talked about how I'm a vegetarian. And I think a lot of that is because I don't like the texture of meat. And this started when I was very young. I was pretty picky with food. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I've gotten a lot better, but... Oh, you've gotten a lot better. Yeah, I still don't eat meat. And I actually had a list because I remember we sat down one time and I said, what will you eat? Right. And so you and me actually made a list of all the things that you told me, yes, that you would eat. It was very like cheese sticks and what else? Pasta was good. Pizza. Um, with. I liked, it's funny, I liked pepperoni and that was about the only meat I could tolerate. And it does have a very different texture from Mm -hmm. chicken or steak. Mm -hmm. You were good with bread. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For a while, it was like breadsticks and pasta. Olives are good. (laughs) I also had a lot of issues with clothing textures. It looks like a lot of people on Instagram also had issues with jeans, which were a big one for me. I never liked wearing them. It just felt so scratchy to me. I couldn't understand how people could feel comfortable wearing it. Mm -hmm. And I think Uh, shoes, a lot of kids don't like shoes. They say they're too tight. And I know it's tough, like, in our house, at least when you were little, if, because I was a nurse, so I worked every other weekend. And, um, you know, when you were, like, a toddler, yeah. or dad helping you get dressed, I know that was, like, a, tr- a chore <laughs> <laughs> for him. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I also have in my notes that I had a sensitive neck, which is kind of funny mm-hmm. to say, but I didn't like things touching my neck, like turtlenecks were no-go. I went to private school, so we had collars, and I wouldn't button my shirt up all the way or I, mm. I would try not to because I didn't like things touching my neck it made me feel like I was like being strangled or choking if anything was just touching my neck mm. I have a fun story about graduation in kindergarten where they made us um, make these graduation hats out of a black it was a plastic um, bowl plastic bowl <laughs> turned with, yeah and yeah. then upside down there was like a square of cardboard that was like glued to the top make a graduation right. hat so it looked like a graduation hat but they used an elastic um to go under your chin and i just remember like breaking down because i felt like i was being strangled and i took it off and someone yelled at me so i had to keep it on and i just like fell to the ground or something i like curled up in a ball and i was like gagging and stuff like i couldn't breathe so there's an example of what it feels like. I think you did have a mark under your chin from the elastic, so... It... I don't know, but anything, <laughs> I always felt like that if anything was touching my neck. 
And then I have another story about uh, one time. I don't know why my sock was wet, but I was outside in the driveway and I had like a tube sock that Mm. was wet around my ankle. Only one of the socks was wet for some reason. We were doing, we were planting shrubbery and watering the plants. Yeah, on the other side of the, Mm -hmm. the yard. So, I don't know, the way my brain processed that sensation was that there was a snake wrapped around my ankle, and it was constricting my ankle, and I think I screamed so loud that the neighbors had to come over. Yep, they came running over, they thought something terrible had happened. Yeah, and I just told everyone there was a snake around my ankle, but I think it was just... That's how my yeah. brain dealt with the feeling. <laughs> we talked about this in an episode about the sound of toilets, like the loud automatic flushing mm-hmm. sound was overstimulating and terrifying. Um, this also happens in large crowds, I guess. The we feeling could, of being yeah. overwhelmed and you can't filter out sounds. And I think that maybe contributed also to the toileting issues. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. you avoided the toilet. Yeah. It creates extra anxiety around all these things. Mm. And then we talked about hugging again. I always hated being hugged and touched in any way by other people. Yeah, you didn't like your hands being touched. You didn't want to hold hands. And people think that's rude, too. And it's just totally uncomfortable. Hair brushing. Yep, that's a big one. That was was always, because you always had long hair, so we're always trying to put it up. And you have thick hair, so we had to brush it. Yeah. You couldn't, like, let it slide for a day. I know that's a common Um, issue, too. Yeah, so that was always torturous. Yeah. And I grew up in the 90s where we had butterfly hair clips. And any hair clip or barrette was like, it felt like it was stabbing my skull. Hmm. So you actually wore headbands for a I lot did, of years. Yeah. And... So those are some of my sensory issues. I guess I don't really experience them to that extent anymore. But as know. a child, it's tough because you're not really verbalizing. Right. I don't even know if you know why you don't yeah. like these things. You just don't want to do it. And as a mom, you're like, no, you have to brush your teeth before bed, so come on, we're going to brush them. You don't even have the vocabulary to, like, communicate what is going on. Right, yeah. Yeah. But I think as you get older, you develop coping mechanisms and different things, and you understand more, like, what is going on. Mm -hmm. So it's less of an issue. And I was reading, too, and I've seen online that a few kids like to wear the same outfit over and over and over. And when I was reading um, about sensory integration, it made me think of that because I was thinking, you know, it's probably that they're comfortable. Yeah. It's a comfortable outfit that the child knows is comfortable um, rather than switching it up and taking a risk of wearing something that's that's uncomfortable. And another thing, too, with you that we did was um, I remember your skin was very sensitive. So I had to use the laundry detergent, like no color, no dye, mm-hmm. just a really bland, plain laundry detergent. Another one I just thought of that is pretty common, and this is common in autism as well, is um, having tags in clothing. Mm-hmm. This can be super irritating and distracting and just overstimulating. So a lot of people that have that issue cut the tags out. Or now it's more possible to buy clothes that don't have a tag. Different ways to get around stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sunglasses, uh, like I mentioned on that trip, we just held a, uh, an umbrella over you for the entire week, but um, there are child <laughs> sunglasses available, and a lot of cars have the tinted shades in the back seats to block the sun from shining on the kids in the back seat. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about a little bit of research about selective mutism and sensory processing disorder. I'll keep it short because... 
research can be kind of boring, but I found it really interesting. So I found a study by, I'm going to say her name wrong, Katerzyna, it's like Katerina, but with a Z, Katerzyna Brimo in 2018 that found that the participants with selective mutism suffered mostly from auditory impairments, such as auditory filtering, and having that issue can affect your ability to speak because you're processing sounds differently. And then there's another article by Airy in 2007 that suggested that auditory information is processed in an unusual way for children with selective mutism and that can possibly make the sound of their own voice overstimulating. And I found that very interesting because I know that myself along with other people with selective mutism often complain about completely hating the sound of their own voice. Mm -hmm. I remember talking in school and it's like the only thing you can focus on is your own voice. Hmm. Which I think for most people they don't even think about it. I think it's kind of neat too that it's an auditory information processing issue and then there's also like the issue with the vestibular sense um, which involves movement, balance, coordination which is like an inner ear Mm -hmm. um, issue. I just think it's interesting because like when you were little, you didn't like to do, I don't want to say sports, but um, anything like with movement, you just, well, you weren't very skilled. I'm still not. I have issues with physical movements. Yeah, like coordinated, being coordinated in movement. (laughs) I'm not confident in that area. So I do find that kind of interesting. Yeah. So right now, I believe sensory processing disorder is not considered its own diagnosis in the DSM and by various mental health professionals. That doesn't mean they're like discounting that it exists. They just don't think it's a separate diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but it's often seen along with ADHD, autism, selective mutism. We should probably point out too that sensory integration issues, it would be treated by an occupational therapist. Mm -hmm. Seeing an occupational therapist is like the most common treatment right now. They do something called sensory integration therapy mm-hmm. and this isn't supported very well by research right now and I think it might be due just to a lack of people doing research I don't know why they're not doing more research around this area because it would be great to have actual support for it other than what families are saying which families are reporting that they're seeing an improvement after occupational therapy so mm-hmm. it's worth a try I think And then some of the, I mean, the biggest, I think the most well-known therapy that uh, occupational therapists do for sensory integration is probably the Wildbarger brushing Mm -hmm. protocol. And I do remember we took you for a evaluation for sensory integration. It was one of the very first things I think we had done. They had recommended the brushing for you at bath time. It didn't really work out for us. We tried it a few times. You hated it. So we just, we didn't bother with it. And what is brushing? So basically to me, like they just, they handed us a brush. It basically as a nurse, it just looks like a surgical scrub brush with Uh a doctor where the nurses, you know, wash your hands prior to going to surgery. It was the exact same brush. I guess that has to do with the pressure. I honestly don't really know, Chelsea. They just handed us a brush, told us to brush you with it during bath time. Mm -hmm. There is kind of a little bit of controversy controversy around the treatment of sensory processing disorder. Sensory integration therapy is the most commonly used therapy, and I think Will yep. Barger, mm-hmm. I can't say it, I think that is part of sensory integration therapy, mm-hmm. and that they claim that they are rewiring the brain by using 
different sensory experiences, I guess. There's really no research supporting that, but skeptics are arguing that maybe the success of that therapy is due to like behavioral management and teaching different coping skills and just mm. exposure therapy. So basically, they expose children to various sensory experiences and they call this a sensory diet, which is like mm. a collection of different stimulation including it can be oral like if they have issues with eating and different tactile so touch experiences and then vestibular which is movement which you balance, were talking about balance yeah. issues mm-hmm. different like exercises so they're basically exposing you to different sensory experiences yeah, we used to go out in the driveway and just do just pra- we would basically make it into a game but practicing standing on one foot jumping or hopping on one foot um, skipping, bouncing mm-hmm. a ball, just things for coordination. Yeah. Um, one thing they recommended for me to have you do was to have you not really ca- uh, lift weights, but help carry in the groceries mm-hmm. when I would get home from the grocery store, um, just to help put some pressure on your joints. Yeah, it's interesting. There's also research that it's suggesting that anxiety could be a cause and also a result of sensory processing disorder, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, I read that also, yeah. which I thought was neat. And then, so coming from that perspective, um, cognitive behavior therapy has also been somewhat successful at treating sensory processing disorder, but they just focus on, they obviously it's not like occupational therapy, they just focus on managing the anxiety that's related to the sensory processing and they develop coping mechanisms with you hmm. such as can you think of uh um it's examples? kind of just like exper- like this experience will end eventually it's not permanent like hmm. how to get through the discomfort like oh instead of shutting down i could communicate with someone to get out of that hmm. situation or different breathing techniques calming techniques i guess counting maybe yeah And then there's other therapies that I've never heard of that I read about. And I just want to say there's like little to no evidence for these, but there's primary reflex integration and tomatis auditory integration. Have you heard of these? No. So the primary reflex integration, they use different movements where they integrate like reflexes that help lead to further development and it looks like they're trying to mimic like different movements in the womb like when you're Hmm. a baby i don't know it's interesting but there's little evidence for that but it is something people Mm. have tried and then there's also the tomatis auditory integration which involves listening through headphones to different auditory stimuli and they have you do different exercises like reading exercises Mm. and things like that which I think if, you're, if your kid is struggling to talk and they have selective mutism, I don't know how successful mm. that would be. It almost sounds a little bit like um, biofeedback therapy. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like that. I don't know. It's been shown to improve some language, but not necessarily hmm. sensory processing. And I just wanted to mention, too, you know, there's a lot of progress in the world, basically, with individuals that suffer from sensory integration issues. I think our local uh, grocery store now mm-hmm. has sensory integration What do they call it? Sensory. It's like sensory friendly, I don't know, nights. They have things like that where they turn fluorescent lights down and they turn off the music. And I think a lot of those are happening because of the prevalence of autism. They also, right, they don't make any announcements during their shopping times. So they're basically like limiting sensory 
Input. Input. Also theaters. Yep. Theaters, they have certain times for sensory showings. It's cool. I've seen some restaurants opening that have sensory Hmm. friendly menus and they have like, this is for autism, but they have the visual menus if your kid doesn't read or if they're visual learners. Yeah. That's really cool. I think the community is becoming more accepting of autism, which I think people with selective mutism can probably benefit from as well. There's also some special gyms that focus on children with sensory integration issues. So just like ball pits, foam mm-hmm. pits for jumping and trampolines. Yeah. Um, but they're specifically geared towards clientele with special needs. Yeah. So I think the takeaway message from this whole thing is that children with selective mutism are often affected by sensory processing disorders so it could potentially delay treatment of selective mutism or it could be impacting your progress if it's not addressed and then if you or or your child suffers from sensory processing disorder I think seeking treatment of an occupational therapy therapist would be um, potentially valuable I think it's good, though, to point out, don't just go to an OT, mm-hmm. that that should be like a supportive therapy. Right. You don't just, right. of course, you don't just take a kid to an appointment every week and that solves the problem. You have to live it like it's a part of your life now. Right. It's sort of a guide, a it's teaching a guide to teach you how to right. handle that at home. While there's a need for research about this, there appears to be like no negative side effects of sen- sensory integration therapy. And a lot of families report improvement, so I think it's worth checking out. I think you should also just pay attention and talk to your child about what their experiences are, like what sights, sounds, textures, tastes bother them and why, and maybe try to reduce them in their environment. I think gradual exposure is key if it's something that's unavoidable. Right, I mean, if you talk to your child and they're able to um, put into words what's bothering them, simply avoid those issues Mm -hmm. I mean avoid bright lights avoid loud sounds um, certain clothing you can just sort of eliminate those from the home and teaching coping mechanisms because some things aren't avoidable in the world right such as counting to get Mm -hmm. through them deep breathing um, guided imagery you know things like that yeah and then we also just in summary talked about things to do at home I think it's a lot about confidence as well and becoming more comfortable with Mm -hmm. different experiences. That's true. Yep. Because I remember when this is like related to the being physical and not being great, Mm -hmm. greatly coordinated. (laughs) And we talked about how in gym class I hated basketball and it was horrible. And I think we even practiced, like Mm -hmm. we were practicing and it made me more comfortable and that kind of helped a lot with feeling comfortable in gym class because I felt like I knew what I was doing more. And everything, I just remember catching a ball was um, difficult for you. Mm-hmm. I think you were afraid of the ball, afraid of getting hit. I was afraid hit. of the ball, yeah. Yeah, so we spent <laughs> a lot of time in the driveway just jump roping and hopping and hopscotch and yep. all those sorts of things just to raise confidence and practice. Mm-hmm. So we decided to talk about sensory integration today because it does affect a lot of people that have selective mutism. And we just want to bring attention to parents that it's not just bad behavior, that children are typically acting out because something's bothering them. Yeah, an overwhelming experience. Like They're experiencing something that's overwhelming. Right. So work with them. 
teach alternative behaviors. Yep, try to figure out what's going on, what they're experiencing, and be compassionate and patient, and try to alter their surroundings to lessen the stimuli so they're not overwhelmed. And educate others about it. It's misunderstood. It's not a visible disability, but yet their behavior in public can be affected by sensory mm -hmm. integration issues and other people are gonna look at you and judge your parenting right. without knowing what you're experiencing. So it can be tough on parents as well as the child. So be strong, be patient, be confident, know what you're doing is right, support your children. Who can become the best expert about this because a lot of people around you aren't gonna know what they're talking about and it's up to you to advocate for your child. You might be the only one in the room that understands and you have to educate everyone. So I'm gonna put the resources in the notes as well. Thanks for listening to another episode. Thank you so much for all the questions you've been sending. We're gonna use those questions in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram. It's a wrap.